If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Blog Talk Radio. Yes, it's new music. New music for parenting your challenging child. I finally got around to it. This program airs every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, and I'm delighted that you have uh, chosen to join in for today's program, either live or um, by listening to the program through the listening library on the Lives in the Balance website. How do you like the new music? Um, I do. Change is good, right? Um, today's Parents Panel Day, always my favorite program of the month, and we already have Susie on the line. I'll bring her on shortly, and I'm seeing that we also have Kathy on the line. I wonder what they'll want us to talk about today. Um, got something I want to talk about, too, just based on an interview that I did with a parent this morning. Uh, in preparation for the second annual Lives in the Balance conference, November 16th in Portland, Maine. It is not too late to sign up. We are getting full, but it is not too late to sign up. You can do that through the Lives in the Balance website, www.livesinthebalance.org. I know that at least one of our parents' panel members is going to be there. I haven't asked the other yet, but you know what? Let's not talk about them without them having the opportunity to join in here. Kathy and Susie, you're both on the air. How are you both today? Great. great. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, Kathy. If you both wait long enough, then you will both say great at the exact same time. (laughs) Well, we planned that. (laughs) Well done. Uh, I'm glad that you both are great. Um, I know that, uh, Susie, I know you're coming to the conference. Kathy, you coming? Well, given that it's in Maine, I certainly should be there. And I did register, um, but but it may have been a computer failure because I got nothing back when I registered. Um, Um, If you email me, I'll make sure that you hear back. I've gotten a smattering of people who didn't hear back, um, and so we'll double-check that here in the offices of Lives in the Balance. So Great. just let me know. Okay, just remind I will. Me anyways. Um, I'm, so, I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm so glad it's right here in Maine. I, I wish I could bring is, a whole host of people. <laughs> well, a whole host of people are coming. Um, if you want to bring a whole host more, that would be incredible, but over 300 people are going to be in attendance at the conference as things stand now. And the cool part about it is that it's completely free of charge. We have two very exciting keynote speakers. One is a gentleman named Richard Ross, who I've talked about before, but he's been uh, funded by the Annie E. Casey Foundation to um, photograph in 
juvenile detention settings in North America, and he will be showing us some of his poignant pictures of kids in those settings just to remind us of what the stakes are when we don't understand and help behaviorally challenging kids as well as we could. The second keynote speaker is Barry Studley, who's from the Department of Corrections in the state of Maine. And Barry will be talking about um, the state of Maine's juvenile detention system and how they have transformed it so that it actually is doing the right thing by behaviorally challenging kids and why the state of Maine's juvenile detention system is now a model for the rest of the nation. We'll then be hearing from all of the, from many of the schools that have been participating in a project in the state of Maine, funded by the Juvenile Justice Advisory Group in the state, um, where we're implementing uh, the model in 14 different um, schools throughout the state of Maine. You'll be hearing from many of the educators whose buildings have already completed the project, and wait till you see their data and wait till you see all the video of people in the buildings talking about what they've accomplished and what it's meant to them. And then we'll spend the afternoon uh, with some people who are new to the model learning all about it and others uh, who have been in the participating schools talking about how they can spearhead efforts to spread the model throughout the state and throughout everywhere. It is going to be quite a conference. How exciting. Somewhere in there, we are going to be giving out our annual Trailblazer Awards to um, a parent and uh, educators and a clinician who have been advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and helping people appreciate how important it is to solve problems collaboratively with kids. And so uh, an added bonus Kathy, I'm glad you're going to be there. Susie, I'm glad you're going to be there. What do you guys want to talk about today? Got anything on tap? Kathy, well, um, I, I do. Um, actually, it's it's really exciting about the conference because um, I'm involved with a parents group in the town that I live in here in Maine, and we are trying to figure out how to bring collaborative problem solving to our district and um we have a lot of a group of parents maybe 10 10 parents so far and we're sort of operating undercover at this point um but we have some connections to our school board and some uh some of the other schools in Maine that are using CPS although we need to broaden that because um we're sort of still in the dark ages where we are um and the other piece to that is my child is no longer in the district school, but he's participating in some activities within the district, such as the outing club, which we talked about last time. And so I'm I'm really interested in getting CPS both into the district and uh, where my son is now at an out-of-district placement. Um, they're using CPS somewhat, and we've done some training. Um, we still could do even more. So I'm really sort of looking at the conference as a springboard to um, furthering those plans. Having said that, um, people um, don't always want to embrace new ideas that didn't start with themselves. So I guess what I'm looking for is some advice on how to to do it. 
Well, and I always um, recommend that people start small. Okay. And so while it is appealing to think of doing this one entire school system at a time, I, starting small often means starting in one school. Okay. And not only that, starting with a small group of people within one school. What I find happens when we start, now that that's when we want to implement the model. And you may be noticing I'm not calling the model collaborative problem solving. Um, I may not be able to call it that anymore. And so I'm actually in the midst of renaming the model. Um, and here's the good news. Uh, the bad news is that I may not be able to call it anymore that anymore, and that's a legal thing, uh, which I'll go into much more detail about when I'm allowed to. Um, the good news is the model has changed and evolved so much over the last five years that um, a new name actually isn't such a bad idea anyways. And so right. uh, from now on, for, for now, we'll be calling it Plan B or Dr. Green's Approach or The Approach. Um because I'm not going to be able to call it what I've been calling it for 10 years anymore, which is a legal thing. Um, and then I'll let everybody know the new name, which is uh, tossing around a bunch of ideas, all really cool, um, just because I may not be able to call it that anymore and because a new name isn't such a terrible idea anyways. But what I'm often recommending that people do, there's sort of the difference between exposing people to the model and helping them do it really well. And sometimes exposure to the ideas comes before doing it really well. Um, so it all depends on where a school and a school system is at in terms of um, are they ready to embrace the ideas yet, do they know about the ideas yet, um, et cetera. Um, if they're not ready at all, then exposure to the ideas is not a bad idea. But if a building is saying, yeah, we really want to get good at this, then, um, or a system is saying, yeah, we really want to get good at this, then starting small are, is really the buzzwords. Start small. Because what happens if people start big is you get lots of people trying it without necessarily having the uh, proficiency yet because the proficiency comes over time to do it well and then you have lots of people in a building or in a system uh, doing it poorly initially and now all of the initial excitement that they may have had about the model and its ideas and um, its you know ideas about why kids are challenging and what we can do differently to help them better um, all that excitement often then transforms into um, a sort of watershed of people saying, uh, this doesn't work. We don't want that to happen. So if a building is really ready to get rolling on it, then what I'm always telling people is we need the leaders um, because um, leaders got to lead the charge on this because it can get difficult. Um, secondly, we need a small core group of people, usually seven or eight people in the building, who are getting good at using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems first, then getting good at plan B first. That all takes about three or four months. And then the cool part is then you have some mentors or some people in the building 
who are ready to help other people use it, use the model, and then the building is ready because we've what people in other fields would call we've built capacity, and now it's now we've got people who can help people out in the building when things start to get a little ragged for them, and mm-hmm. that's how we usually get the ball rolling in a building. So it all basically depends on where you feel your school system is at, but it's something that um, we can certainly talk about further as it relates to your school system in particular, um, but lots of people listen to this program um, and want to know how do I get this going in my school system, and, um, well, that's how. Okay, that's helpful. That's really helpful. What I'm also telling people is a lot of people are saying, how do I get it going in my child's building rather than in an entire school system? And what I'm usually saying then is find someone who you think will be the most sympathetic ear and ask them how to do it in their school system because they may actually know more about um, how to make it happen than somebody who's trying to make it happen from the outside. It's always good to get guidance right. on that. Right. That help? It does. It does. It helps a lot. Um I wish it were really easy and really quick, and of course it isn't, but I wish it was easy and quick to transform the way people think about behaviorally challenging kids and to transform practices. Unfortunately, the reality is that it's not quick, takes a long time, and it's really hard. And so we need to make sure that the commitment is there to to see it through the hard times. Otherwise, people tend to throw in the towel when it gets hard, and that's always a pity. So I like to let people know ahead of time, this is going to be really, really hard. What people will be hearing about at the conference, of course, is um, what all that hard work gets you, which is pretty cool. Yeah, well, not doing it well is really hard, too. Um, that that causes a lot of anguish and, you know, bad feelings for the students, the parents, the teachers, everyone involved, too. So I kind of look at it that either way is hard. You know, pick 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 which way you'd, be, you'd like to... Not doing it well with my... My kid ended up in an out-of-district placement, I guess is what I'm saying. And, you know, some really, you know, a legal situation, a whole host of other problems um, that could have been handled differently. Yes. Well, and your story is not an atypical one, which speaks to how important it is to get this spread all over the place. Um, No matter where I travel, I'm being approached by parents who um, have been through it, not only with their kids at home, but also with their kids at school, um, and are wishing that there was a way to make it happen in their school system. Um, 
my experience has been that it's sort of one school and one school system at a time. But I also believe that there will eventually be sort of a groundswell in the direction of non-punitive, non-adversarial interventions that, um, and of course, this model will be there when people realize they need it. Right. Susie, what you got today? Well, speaking of school, um, I was wondering if you had a chance to read. Um, it's actually on the website, so I suppose you did. The article um, from the Times in October entitled Attention Disorder or Not, Pills to Help in School. Um, and I'm going to quote some of the article that uh, this doctor is saying that it's too expensive to modify the kid's environment, so we have to modify the kid. And um, and I was just wondering your thoughts about what they're doing. You're speaking about the physician in Georgia who's provi- who's uh, medicating kids who aren't even diagnosed with ADHD because he feels that the system isn't changing, so you have to change the kid? Right, and and uh, the population that he's working with, um, the schools are poorly funded, so they don't necessarily have the money to um, improve their schools, so they need to change the child. Well, what I've read about it is that... Um, my sense, and I haven't spoken to the physician in Georgia directly, so I have no idea if this is where he's coming from, but I actually think mm-hmm. he may be trying to make a point about where we're at. Um, and where we're at seems to be that it's actually, and it's been this way for quite some time, easier to prescribe a medication than it is to um, change a system that is very difficult to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he prescribes medication because he's sort of thrown in the towel on changing the system. It's interesting because I'm not a prescribing doctor. Um, I'm not an MD. So prescribing medication is not an easy option for me. I can always refer a child to someone else for the medication to be prescribed. But um, I do change systems. It takes an enormous amount of time, takes an enormous amount of patience, takes an enormous amount of perseverance, but systems can be changed. And my goal is to put as many resources out there from the people who've actually done that work in their systems so that other people can see what they've done and so that maybe the physician in Georgia may someday be more optimistic about the potential for changing systems. Um, but let there be no doubt, it will always be the case that changing, that writing a prescription will be easier than changing a system. Um, 
That's always going to be true. I will say this. In terms of money, um, he, he may be in a area where the school system is uh, has hit upon hard times budget-wise. I must say I'm finding that to be the norm for almost every school system I uh, learn about these days. Mm-hmm. Um, schools are often uh, under the gun when state budgets need to be cut. Um, schools often get nailed. Education often suffers. And given the way the economy's been for a very long time and given the dire straits that many states are in, education budgets in every state that I'm aware of are getting decimated. The cool part is here in Maine, the education budget has been decimated, but the schools that are implementing the model are doing it anyways. That's exactly right. Um, That plan B is not necessarily, it's not an added expense. It's a uh, different way of thinking about the children, and it doesn't cost money. Well, it costs in times of energy and time. Um, And I think that the kids we're talking about here are worth it. And I think their parents are worth it, and I think their classmates are worth it, and I think their teachers are worth it. Um, The data tell us that 50% of new teachers leave the profession within the first five years, and that challenging behaviors of students is often very high on the list of reasons they leave. Mm -hmm. And so... um, it's not just the kid and not just the parents who are suffering here. Uh, they are suffering, let there be no doubt, but um, teachers are suffering too and classmates are suffering too when we don't do the right thing for behaviorally challenging students. Um, and and I don't have the data for this yet, um, but what I'm hearing from the schools that are implementing the model is that they are keeping students in the building who otherwise would have been put in placements, expensive placements, outside the building. And so um, the the stage is set for us to also document the fact that um, the model not only saves time, it saves money. And then state governments will be extremely interested because... um, Saving money on behaviorally challenging kids is something that every school system is extremely interested in doing. All in time. Mm. Yes. Um, ready for mine? Sure. Sure. Talking talking to a mom this morning, mm-hmm. um, and uh, she graciously uh, agreed to be videotaped uh, and video of her talking about what one of the schools in the project has done for her son to improve things through implementation of the model. Um, One of the things that 
she was talking about was how awful it felt to get um, daily reminders from school in the form of a daily report card frequently, in the form, in her case, of lots of frowny faces, daily feedback that things were not going well at school. And she said, my child gets off the school bus, I'm happy to see him, and what am I handed? A report from school saying um, things went very badly at school today. This was happening on an almost daily basis. She said it felt awful. I wanted to ask you both, I'm, I'm thinking that you both have some experience in this realm, not necessarily in the form of daily reports, but in the and she also said that she felt rather helpless because of course she's not the one who was there when the challenging behavior was occurring at school. I was wondering if both of you had had that experience and whether you wanted to talk about that a little today. Well, um, I certainly had that experience um, with my son. It, it was uh, we got the daily uh, papers, um, sort of the daily report cards. Um, I would say from first grade on through third grade, and they varied a little bit. Um, by the time they were in third grade, it was called strikes. So if you got three strikes, you were out, I guess. Um, so those were draining, and, and one year they caused us to keep our son home from trick-or-treating, and to this day I can't tell the story about that without feeling terrible because we kept my son home from trick-or-treating, and we found out that the third strike that day was because he wouldn't give up trying to fix the mechanical pencil that was broken and accept a different one. Aww. And that was that was what caused the third strike and you know when i found out it was that i was just to this day i can i every time halloween comes around and it's been 5 years i remember that you know having taken away something that was so important mm-hmm. and i would do better if i could or would do better now and dig a little deeper but um it even last year it used to be the phone calls um of things not going well and um, that became very draining. So you start dreading when the phone rings and you recognize the phone number. Um, you know, and I remember offering lots of help and support, and finally saying, "Well, I can't do any more. You you were going to have to to work on it." I told the school that, and we're at a very good place um, for my son, who are the, they do have more experience with challenging kids, but not necessarily using CPS or uh, the model, rather, and I remember just saying, I can't do any more. I've done everything I can, and it it sounds like something that you're going to need to work on. And that was actually a freeing moment for me because it, it just it felt like the problem was trying to be passed on to me, and, it, and and after a while there really wasn't anything more I could do to help if they weren't working effectively. Susie, any 
Thoughts on that? Yeah, I have a uh, couple of thoughts. Um, For our implosive daughter, the um, guidance counselor was constantly um, reminding me, and that's probably a polite word, um, that our daughter's doctors have to do a better job by her um, in order to get her to school when she was having difficulty getting to school. Um, the the idea that our daughter wasn't doing this for attention or that she was just being willful or lazy um, was a very difficult concept for the school to understand. Um, The other thing that I was thinking about is you both were talking was uh, for our explosive son. Uh, Originally, I had taken him to a a local child psychologist, and he would often berate me with such statements as I was too soft, that it was up to me to enforce the standard rewards and punishments, you got to follow the chart. You need to be firmer. You're the authority. Stick to your guns. Um, and these phrases would just spin around in my head with feelings of inadequacy um, that my son's behavior was my fault and I wasn't supposed to tolerate his disrespectful language or physical aggression. So how much did it help? I mean, this goes back to blaming parents for the misbehavior of their children. I find that it's kind of paralyzing. Um, Blaming is paralyzing. Blaming parents who we could be um, working together with is always a shame because now the parent has, as you're saying, lots of things floating around in their head that isn't going to help them move forward mm-hmm. and isn't going to help us work together. Because and, and this mom who I videotaped this morning was saying very much the same thing, and that is that she felt inadequate and felt that she must be doing something wrong. Um, Fortunately, her child is in a school that has transformed its discipline program and its lenses, and so um, she hasn't been getting that in a very long time. She used to, as Kathy was saying, dread the phone ringing, um, not that she looks forward to the phone ringing now, but it's not the phone ringing to say, uh, here's what your kid did, now what are you going to do about it? Or here's what your kid did, you got to take him because he's gone for three days. Mm-hmm. But more, listen, we've already gathered some information from him. We understand what happened. 
Um, here's the solution we're thinking we're going to run with. Um, a very different approach um, that is not blaming and is collaborative. What wonder what it would have felt like to you for it to be that way? Well, actually, um, as our sun began deteriorating in front of our eyes, which that's not supposed to happen when you take the child to a, quote, expert, um, we changed doctors and we found someone who's who understood and whose uh, child-rearing philosophies um, meshed with ours. That helps. Yes, it did. Kathy, what would it have felt like if people had done things a different way? Um, it would have... It would have helped. I mean, there there was so much damage done that um, it's interesting and almost cathartic now to try and help and improve, because you you know you can you can spend a lot of time in the past and say I wish it had been better, um, but it isn't. Um, you know you can't change that. So I think you have to go forward, and that that's what I'm trying to do. It my my son, however. It feels like he will never forgive, um, and when he's in a good place, he'll say, "You know, they should. This is what they didn't know about dealing with kids like me." And and he's a little more generous of spirit, but but um, you know, it is it is it, it scarred him for life for sure. To be treated that way, I don't know that people understand that or or think that I'm over dramatizing when I say that, but I'm really not. Um, you know, we did trauma therapy over restraints and things like that. So, you know, it 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 sends such a message to kids that there's something wrong with them. I think that is the thing that scares me. Well, it does. It also sends a message to parents that there's something wrong with them. Right. Um, I should let you know that not today, but next month, issues in children's mental health program uh, will be focused on the topic of restraint and seclusion in schools. And we'll have on some guests who are... um, advocating against restraint and seclusion in schools and trying to get rid of it completely. Um, That's next month. Uh, Today I'll be interviewing somebody from uh, a gentleman named Jeff Morin, who's the acting superintendent at Mountain View Youth Development Center in Charleston, Maine, about the transformation that has been made in his facility um, through implementation of the model. Um, I'm just curious, though, not not if you don't want to talk about it, but um, I agree with you that I think that most people don't appreciate the damage done. Um, Certainly, 
through restraint and seclusion, but also just by what we say about behaviorally challenging kids and to them um, about why we think they're doing what they're doing. Um, what are some of the ways in which you feel like your son has been scarred for life beyond what you've mentioned already? Um well, he he has such a he has a view of people as being unreliable and untrustworthy and dangerous. His fight or flight activates so quickly with adults because of the way he was treated. And we have to do a lot of social stories around why people might act the way that they do or their social thinking um but he is much more quick to to be afraid of of what someone's intentions are um because of the way he was treated and he thinks that all public schools are bad and um there's and and my my younger son is actually doing quite well in the district so um we have to talk to him about how he can't badmouth the district that he has to think about Tim's feelings and that it worked for some and that you know we work for change um but it, it's really skewed his world view um we we had to go to due process over his um his placement and so his answer to anything is well let's sue them you know we didn't get the newspaper today let's sue the newspaper company you know so <laughs> It, it it all goes back to that trauma, and I think you know it started for him in first grade, and so you know went through fourth, and then continued on as we fought over things with our district for you know a period of four years. It, it, so it it's um it's a part of his life story, I guess, and it's a, it, it's not something that's a quick fix. We've done all sorts of things to help him with it, but you know it's a it's a part of him. It's integral to who he is. Well, it certainly sounds like it was a very powerful experience for him. Um, I hope that he's able someday, and you're, you're right, it could take a while, uh, especially for a kid um, who probably has difficulty appreciating all the facts on the ground and um motivations of different people and etc hopefully someday he gets some perspective on it so that it actually potentially becomes a positive that's hard to say at this point of course but eventually perhaps becomes a positive for him because i think that perspective is always a positive even if the experiences that brought you to the perspective are extremely painful and agonizing um a more uh a different perspective that is more informed is always an improvement on a perspective that wasn't as informed once again i totally get it that the um agony of what you go through to get the new perspective uh, often causes you to question whether it was worth it but um it's usually worth it to hopefully That'll be something he comes by at some point. Right. For what it's worth, Kathy, I was going to say the same thing 
as Dr. Green. Of course, I wouldn't say it quite as well, but, That's you know. That's very I, nice of you, Susie, but I, I know better. <laughs> I I just wanted to say that I'm so sorry for what happened to your child, but, you know, maybe it would turn into a positive in that it it he could grow from it and become he's probably more compassionate, kind and sensitive because of it. And hopefully one day perhaps he'll be able to give back and make a difference in somebody else's life. Yeah, so I, I encourage him. Go ahead, Kathy. Sorry. Go ahead, Kathy sorry. I encourage him to, and I, I say, you know, as we try to make changes in your district, you know, if at any point you feel comfortable in sharing your story, we can make that happen, you know, whether it's written or or we tape them or something. I said, I think people need to know, and he's told, you know, friends, parents, and, and other adults what's happened mm-hmm. to him, and I think that is very good because, you know, then he feels like I've told them what happened and they're not seeing me as a bad kid. You know, they're seeing that, gee, wow, this was, situation really wasn't handled very well. And, you know, they also see how well he's doing when he is handled well. Mm-hmm. And that makes a huge difference. I mean, he's a different kid from where he was four years ago. So. Right. There's hope. Well, he's there's also always. Got, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, cut to the. I was just going to say, there's always hope, and um, sometimes we learn more from the experiences when they don't work out so well. Some ways you learn more. Right. And he's got you trying to find ways to change the school system so that it doesn't happen to other kids. Right. Um. I spoke at uh, a conference in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a few weeks back, the Eric Cogswell Memorial Conference. Um, uh, Eric's parents have created the conference as a memorial to him. Um, he is a, uh adolescent who uh, was diagnosed with pediatric bipolar disorder and ultimately um, took his own life. Oh, no. And, um, you know, what more, What is there anything more tragic that could happen to parents? Um, no. But they uh, created a memorial conference and um, how to solve problems collaboratively with kids was the focal point of this year's conference that I was fortunate enough to be able to speak at. And, um, you know, the main point there is um, here they've suffered about as big a tragedy as parents can suffer, and they've tried to make something positive out of it. Um, mm-hmm. After the conference was over, they were saying to me that they wish they had known about the model um, way back when, and uh, me too. But they yeah. are now doing something to make sure that others do know about it. And um, so, Kathy, not trying to sort of artificially make you 
feel better about what you're doing, but I actually think it's pretty cool that you are um, trying to take the negative that you experienced and turn it into something that is more positive for other kids and may someday be even more positive for your son. Right. Thank you. We are almost out of time for today. We have about another minute left. Either of you have any final parting thoughts before we run out of time here today? Mm, I think I just want to add that if you can, try to look for the humor in things. It just helps you. It helps you get through. Um, I think changing your lenses and and viewing your challenging child differently adds patience and energy, but always try to keep your sense of humor. Good advice, and as we all know, easier said than done, but worth the try. Mm. Yes. I want to thank Kathy and Susie, both of you, for participating again in this month's Parents Panel, and I can't wait to do it again next month. Thank you both. Thank you. Uh, we will not be having a program next week because of Amer- Veterans Day in the United States. But we'll be back in two weeks with another parenting with a behaviorally challenging child.